0: Thank you, uh, music team, and thank you for the guest instrumentalists this morning for coming to help us rejoice and to praise God. So our teaching elder, George, who prefers to be called an elder, not a pastor, that's just a little bit of education for you, he has been on a study uh, week this past week, and which includes not preaching today. He is attending the service of his son who pastors in Oakville and recently moved there with his family to serve the Lord. So that's a a blessing for parents to go and hear their kids preach. And so that's where he is. He'll be back here tonight. And it's my privilege to share with you today from God's word. So when you were parents of young children, or if you are parents of young children, or if you're a grandparent and your young grandchildren are around, uh, there's been those times when one did something to the other that they shouldn't have done. So there's probably crying, there's fussing and all of this. So you bring them together and you say, now tell him that you were sorry. Okay. now give him a hug right? Uh, because what we're doing there, it's, we're teaching how to restore relationships that have been hurt and have been broken. And our text for today is about a father-son relationship that became broken and then restored. We know it as the parable of the prodigal son. And I've invited uh, Sherry Camboy to come and read it to us from the New Century Version. So rather than turning to it, In your version, just listen as she reads it to us this morning. Thank you, Sheryl. Please join me in prayer. Father, how gracious you are to open your arms to those who return to you, to seek you. We ask you to open our hearts and minds and our spirit to what you have to say to us today through this passage and through your word. May you be glorified, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus uses these three back-to-back-to-back stories for a single purpose. He's answering the jealous religious leaders who were outwardly critical of Jesus. They were devout religious Jews, and they associated. Uh, they saw Jesus associating with people that they were uncomfortable with, people they called sinners. I remember years ago, in Saskatchewan, a person who was 40 came to know Christ and he'd been an alcoholic and he started coming to the church and one of our elders' wives was a bit uncomfortable with that. She, she, she wasn't sure that she wanted to have someone of that background in the church. Well, we all share those kind of inner reactions at times. The religious elite believed that it was spiritually defiling. It somehow messed up their relationship with God to have personal contact with non-Jews. And so when they came from the marketplace, they would do a ceremonial washing. We do it for sanitary reasons. They would do it for ceremonial ritual cleansing. And they had this fear of somehow getting uh, polluted by contact with the the non-Jews. And non-religious people. And they were so focused on their own religious righteousness that they could only see Jesus as someone who violated the boundaries that they had set for themselves. And it was just another push against Jesus that ended up with the final cry, crucify him. So Jesus uses these three stories, these parables, to talk to these religious policemen who thought it was their duty to criticize him, to show them that they should be glad uh, and celebrate whenever one of these sinners that they called would, would repent and turn to God. It's all about restoring what was lost, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, lost sinners. And then as we know at the end of the story, Jesus concludes with, with the critical self righteous attitude of the older brother that mirrors exactly the attitude and the pushback of Jesus' criticizers. And so we want to talk about the path to restoration that this passage illustrates for us. So our focus today is on this parable. It's a picture of a father-son relationship that has been lost and then restored or found. And it dramatizes Uh, In very down-to-earth ways, the path back to a broken relationship uh, to be restored and healed, to be found. Now, this is not the original intent that Jesus told this story. So I want to acknowledge that. But it's our purpose today to take from this story and extend the application uh, to restoring relationships, restoring relationships with people Restoring relationships with the Heavenly Father. Now, here's why. We need to know that there is always a way back when a relationship has been broken. Because sometimes we're not sure. Broken and lost relationships are part of life on earth, aren't they? It happens in, amongst spouses. Spouses among siblings, extended family, people in the same congregation, people in the same office where they work. We are imperfect people, and we can and do have personal relationships that are broken and sometimes even destroyed. And this story encourages us. It encourages us that there is a way back, and it also helps us to see what it takes to be restored, And I want us to notice it takes two to restore a broken relationship. It takes two. It's not just about the prodigal son. It's also about the father. So there's a lost relationship of this father-son relationship. Now, both the son and the father had experienced an original relationship. And this looks very comfortable, doesn't it? Uh, This is a good time in their lives, a good space in their lives. And it's about a young adult by now uh, living at home, and that was a cultural way of life. You know, sons just stayed around and were part of the business. They didn't take off, usually. And so this, these two sons had shared family life and all of its dimensions and experiences, the good times, the bad times, and they had a long history together. This is not a 12-year-old kid who's Rebelling and deciding to leave home. This is a young man, old enough. But all of those good times and all that emotional connection was suddenly disrupted. And that relationship, that father-son relationship was lost. That original relationship was lost. Because as we know in the story that Jesus told, that the son decides... Excuse me. I'm in between cataract surgery and getting new prescriptions. So this is a little bit uh, cramps my style. 12 and 13. The younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, The young son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. So this lost relationship began when the younger son decided to demand his share of the family inheritance in advance. So this is very unusual. It's very unusual. Because in the custom of the day, you waited till father died before you got your share. And he can't wait for his father to die, so he wants his share now. And he's the younger son, and he's not going to get the majority, because the elder son always got twice. So there's two sons, so the elder son is going to get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son is going to get one-third. And that's what he's demanding and wants. It's an extreme and outrageous act in the culture of the day. You just didn't do that. It was unheard of. So internally, that lost relationship began when the son was plotting all of these things, what he wanted to do. And then it was externalized by just walking away from home, uh, from his father, going to a distant country. And I believe that suggests it was a Gentile country outside of the people of God, outside of Israel. And he squandered his inheritance and wild living. And according to the elder son in verse 30, He spent it on uh, immoral living. So picture him. He's leaving the home. He's he's walking, making his way to to this other country, and he's having a great time. He's enjoying, quote, his sense of freedom. Mom and dad are not looking over his shoulder. They're not saying, well, you shouldn't be doing this. Uh, There's no boundaries, no accountability, and he forgets about home and about father and about all of those things. Now, he's totally responsible and exclusively responsible for his behavior and his choices and the ultimate situation. And we know that he got down into the end of life. He's at the bottom and he hasn't a penny in his pocket. He is now not happy and he's not enjoying his freedom because his freedom has taken him to lose everything. The interesting thing is the father let him go. Now, if you were a parent, you probably wouldn't say, okay, that's okay with me. There would be some negotiating, some, uh, maybe some anger, some arguing, some pleading. But the father just seems to say, okay. But the story is not over. We should always remember The story of broken relationships is not over. And you might have flashed in your mind this morning a broken relationship. It doesn't have to be over. There is hope for lost relationships. So let's look at the pathway for restoration for the prodigal. Just look at him and then we want to apply that in a broader sense. So the son needed to take some necessary steps to be able to be restored to the original father-son relationship. And I want to break it down into kind of incremental steps. But first of all, uh, he's he's on his, at the bottom of the, the barrel, as it were, and verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he woke up to reality. You know, it, takes, it took him a long time to wake up to reality. It may have taken weeks or months or even years. We don't know. We have no indication of how long this broken relationship had gone on. But this was the moment of truth that was needed. The reality hits him hard. Why didn't he think of that earlier? Well, when you're, in, when you're on the receiving end of a lost relationship and you're responsible for it, you just don't think. You're numb to that. But finally, the good thing is he woke up to reality. And then he says, he humbles himself and he says, I will go back to my father. Now, all that pride, all that, if there was arrogance, all that pride has just melted away. But he had to humble himself in his own heart and mind. He's self-convicted. And he admits to himself that he had wronged his father and his God. And so he expresses his repentance. Yes, he repented. And you, in verses 18 to 20 of our text, I will rise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose. And came to his father. He changes his thinking. That's what repentance is. You make up your mind. To go in the opposite direction. Internally. All those thoughts and those feelings. He begins to to move away from that. And he sets out for home. He's acting out his repentance. Every step. Was a. A step of repentance. And then he comes, he's got this rehearsed with his father. So he's going to say to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So what he's doing is identifying his sin. He's taking totally responsibility for his sins. That's his confession. That's what he's going to say to his father, but he's already done that confession in his heart. And so as we Read in the account in verse 19 and 21. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. What's he doing? He's submitting himself to the father. he accepted the consequences for his sin. You know, I know I've lost it, and I I don't believe I'm worthy to have that back again. And he puts himself at his father's mercy. He's he's like that puppy that's done something wrong, tail between his legs and his head down, down in submission. That's what he's coming back in, in that spirit. And he put himself under his father's authority because he had taken away he had moved himself from his father's authority when he left. And now he's coming under that authority. And then there's this great, great celebration. The father's response is so critical and telling. That's why I said it takes two for restoration. It depends now on what the person will do who has been wronged. So as we read in verse 22... But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us celebrate. For this was, my son was dead, is alive again, he was lost, and his family began to celebrate. And so the restoration is complete when the celebration begins to happen. The father's response was a telling thing in all of this because he held the power of restoration The person wronged always holds the power of restoration. And he's going to, the father is going to respond proportionately to the son's repentance. And he extends extraordinary grace by accepting the returning son, notice without reservation or conditions. You know, you've got a curfew now. There's nothing, no limitations here. It's, it's grace in its best human scenario. Now the son, but it also takes the son now. How is he going to respond to that? He had the choice to accept this full restoration from his father. He could say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure that, you know, that my father's really forgiving me. But what he's doing is accepting his father's grace and forgiveness by celebrating together. And that's when the restoration is complete, when emotionally and mentally, within, he embraces his father back. And they enjoyed and celebrated full restoration of their relationship. Now, outside in the field, the elder brother is hearing all of this, and we know he comes back, and and he he finds out what's going on and, and he's sulking and complaining and he could not appreciate and celebrate the restored relationship. He couldn't. Just as the religious leaders were doing the same with Jesus and the people who were coming to him. They didn't have the freedom to celebrate sinners coming in repentance. And so this story, no, though not intended Jesus didn't tell it for this reason. This story is a pathway to restoration. It's a graphic figure, a picture of the way back to the Heavenly Father that we each need to take. And so you can see we sinners and our Heavenly Father in this story, the way back for salvation. There is a way back. We, you see, we lost. Our original relationship with God, our Creator. And the story of humanity begins in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. So, our first parents, Adam and Eve, represented us in the garden. They represented us completely in the garden. Scripture speaks of us as being in Adam collectively. We all start out life. Our spiritual identity is that we are in Adam. We're not in Jesus. And so we're fully represented by Adam. He spoke and he acted on behalf of all humanity. A little bit of a parallel that I think of is when we have an athlete who represents our country. This is a solo athlete, whatever it is. And the country, when, the, when that athlete wins and goes on the medal and gets gold, we share that. They represent the country. We kind of enjoy that celebration, and, and we may feel the, the loss if, if that person fails. But this is much deeper than that. So Adam is acting on our behalf. Scripture teaches us that Adam is our original head. We were in his loins by procreation. I'm not going to go into that, but Hebrews 7, 9 to 10, if you want to follow that up. Levi was in Abraham's loins. That's an interesting study, but I just mentioned that because the scriptures do talk about being our original head, Adam, in that same way. So our first parents enjoyed a personal relationship with our creator. Can you picture it? It was perfect. It was complete. It was intimate. In Genesis 2, 7, 7 to 9, the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living creature and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And in chapter 3, verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What does that tell us? Think of that original relationship that Adam and Eve had with the creator, with the God of the universe. It was perfect. There was nothing between they and God. There wasn't a shadow, wasn't even a hint of complaining or criticizing God. There was no sin in the world. Every day was paradise. But it was also conditional on their absolute obedience to God. In verse 16 of chapter 2, remember what God legislated when he put them in the garden. Verse 16 of chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Our first parents disobeyed. And they lost their original relationship with the creator. So chapter 3 talks about that scenario of how Satan, in using the serpent, came to Eve as a salesperson and convinced her that this was something that God was holding out. And it was something that would be better for them. They would be like God. And so they wanted more freedom than God gave them. If there were a thousand trees in the garden and just the one tree, it's not that, that they didn't have much choice. They had so much, but just one tree that they were to stay away from. But that, that got their attention. And Adam knowingly ate of the tree. He was an absent head in the home. And what they do, they sacrificed their perfect personal relationship with God. They lost their physical immortality. So death set in and they will die physically. And they lost their spiritual relationship with God. They were separated from God's life. They spiritually were dead. And so God banished them from the garden. And they ended up in the far country. He sent them out of the place of blessing and they ended up in the far country by their own choice. And history is a record of the fallout from this disaster. Our first parents passed on their lost relationship to the whole human race. And scripture traces our lost relationship with God right back to Adam. When Adam transgressed, when he fell. In reality, he took the entire human race with him that would follow him. And because of Adam's sin, all humanity was separated from God, inheriting death, that is, physical death and also spiritual separation from God. Romans 5, verse 12, which is a a key verse in this whole story. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Scripture describes us as being in Adam. If you want to reference, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22. In Adam, we all die. That's our destiny. We all share in the same sentence of death as that Adam experienced. We share in the same spiritual identity. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. And we instinctively live out our identity as sinners. Someone has said, We cannot not sin. Let me say that again. In our original relationship that we have lost with God, we cannot not sin. Because that's our nature. We naturally go our own way rather than God's way. All we, like sheep, go astray. And what does God call that? He calls it iniquity. The Lord has laid his iniquity upon his Son. And so we need to be reconciled to God. In the Romans passage, it talks about when we were enemies, Christ died for us. We need to be reconciled to God. Our relationship with God has been lost. It needs to be restored on a one-to-one basis. We naturally resist submitting ourselves to God and his authority. We naturally resist submitting ourselves to God and his authority. So God says in his word, this is the way you should live or should not live. We wrestle with that. That's why we have struggles but the Father, and by the way, humanism and the God of evolution result in no moral restraints. And that's the natural wiring for every one of us. So God the Father has made a way back for us. And that's the good news. That's the good news. It's good news for you if, if you're in the far country where you haven't been reconciled to God and submitted yourself to Christ. And he reaches out to us in extravagant grace. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whoever believes in him will not go on perishing. But will have eternal life. And he wants to restore us to full sonship. Behold what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us. That we should be called the children of God. That's what he wants us. That's the relationship he wants with us. He wants to restore us to that relationship with himself without reservation or conditions, and he offers us the gift of eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And he will put our lost past behind and never bring it up against us again. so what do we need to do what's the way back for us as individuals because we have to take that for ourselves well we need to wake up to our need somehow we need to understand that we begin life separated from god's eternal life and satan seeks to keep us spiritually blind to this the god of this world has blinded those who do not believe so they don't understand and the hope but the holy spirit works in us. And probably you have experienced somewhere in your life that kind of that, you know, you know you should respond to God as your Savior, but it's such a struggle. You don't want to. And that's that's the battle, the spiritual battle. And we need to humble ourselves before God, stop resisting God and agree that we are lost, that there's nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. We can't come to God on our own For it's not by works of righteousness that brings us to restore relationship. It's the grace of God. And we need to repent by turning to God. Turn from the way we've been thinking and living independently of God. And seek the Lord. And then we need to confess our need of of the Savior. Admit that we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. But God commends his love towards us that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Believe that Jesus is the way to the Father. And we need to submit ourselves to Christ as our way back. Because he is the only way to the Father, Jesus. And we need to submit ourselves to him. And then we need to accept God's full acceptance. When we come to Christ to seek him as our Savior, we have a full restoration Sometimes we have trouble accepting that. But the scriptures say there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And what God has, the work that God has begun in us, he will complete it till the day of Christ. You know what it's like when, when you hug someone and you can tell they're just kind of not responding the same way? Maybe even your spouse because something has come between you. You know what that's like. Sometimes we have trouble with God. Does he really accept me fully and forgive and, and wipe away all those things of my past? And we struggle with that because we're the ones that are holding back from embracing God fully, emotionally, mentally. But that's our response. We need to accept his full assurance, his, his full restoration. Is there something in the way of you being restored to Christ and salvation? If you're here today and you've never submitted yourself to Jesus as the way of salvation, what is it that's in the way? It's not worth to let it stay in the way. This is what the gospel is all about. And this is what it's all about for us as followers of Christ, is to do what we can to see individuals restored to a relationship with the Father that we know and we experience. Now, sometimes there's things that's in the way. Kristen Holmberg was nine years old when her father died. And she made up her mind that, as a nine-year-old, that, that she would avoid God because she thought God had subjected her to this, this devastating loss. And she, would, she had pushed back for the next 13 years. She had this anger in her heart and this grief. But at the age of 22, she found healing by surrendering to Jesus Christ. And that's the secret. Surrender to Christ. But the story of the path to restoration is also the way back for us as believers to fellowship with Christ. You see, we sometimes say, well, I'm saved and that's okay. and I'll just go about my business. And we live life whatever way we want. But that's not how it works. We have a relationship with God that we're to enjoy. It's called fellowship. It's called intimacy. It's called enjoying God and walking with him. And so this is the pathway back to fellowship with God. And we can enjoy personal fellowship with God. It's a privilege of restored believers. I've written these things, John says in his first epistle. I've written these things so that you may have fellowship with Jesus Christ and with God the Father and with us. We can have that intimacy with God God wants us to have that intimacy that Adam and Eve had, where God walked in the cool of the evening and talked with them, not in a physical presence, but in a spiritual way. He talked with them, and they with him. Paul says in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit sends, it comes into our heart, and it's the spirit of adoption that in our spirit we're able to call the Heavenly Father our Father intimately. Not with any sense of distance, but with complete intimacy and and freedom. And to know there's nothing that God is holding out on us about. But we can lose that fellowship with God. Just as Adam lost his fellowship in the garden, and so he's hiding from God as we read in Genesis 3 and verse 8. God walks there as usual in the cool of the evening and Adam and Eve are hiding because something happened the moment they disobeyed God. Something came into their life that was, was like, like fear and a sense there's something wrong. And so they were hiding from God. We know what it's like for children to lose their emotional closeness with parents by their attitude. <laughs> and the parent maybe isn't affected so much, but the child doesn't have that sense of intimacy, That it's, they know there's something wrong and they feel that distance. The little children will finally come and they'll hug you, and that's when, they, when they're back. You know what it's like, spouses? When you go to bed, you cannot drop your emotional, mental behavior outside the door. And you can be laying in bed and don't touch me. That's your side and my side. (laughs) That's reality. We're all all in that life. Like There's none of us perfect. And so between the Father and us, things can get in the way. And so we kind of find ourselves really not interested in scripture, we don't feel like praying, we don't want to be around Christians, maybe not even come to church because we just, we just feel distanced from God. Maybe God doesn't love us. Fellowship with God depends on, in 1 John, walking in the light as Jesus walked. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, It keeps us clean keeps that intimacy with God uh, clear so that we do not have that sense of distance or, or concern. It's thinking and behaving in harmony with Christ and his word. So a young man said to me one day, they were, he was struggling with a lot of things about kind of hopelessness and I said, do you struggle with pornography or addictive masturbation? And he said, yes. He said, I think maybe that's the problem. Whatever it is, it can sap our desire for God and get in the way. We're we're in the family, we're in a corner, and we don't feel close to the Lord. But we can have our fellowship with God restored through repentance and confession. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He just clears that away and he doesn't see it anymore. <clears throat> Excuse me. We need to live out repentance as a way of life. We don't repent just to come to Jesus. We repent of anything that gets between Jesus in ourselves, in our daily life. And I can't help but use the marriage scenario. It's like a spouse who said a word or done something that hasn't been addressed. And just go on. But that thing is still there, it's still history. And there will come a time when it erupts like a submarine coming out of the water or a volcano. That's why we need to live in repentance. I'm I'm okay, thanks, Glenn, I'm just about finished. So David's prayer of confession that we read this morning, Psalm 51, that's a good prayer to read. It doesn't matter what David's sin was. That's not the issue. It's that anything that comes between us and God It gets in the way. And he's asking for God to restore the joy of his salvation. He doesn't say restore salvation. He says, I've lost the joy. There's something missing. And so I need that back again. And that's why I'm confessing. And so to do that, we need to place ourselves under the searchlight of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to pray this closing prayer with me, which is on the screen. Let's read it together. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Father, we come before you today. We, th- we know that we can't hide from you. And this morning we ask you to be gracious to us. Lead us gently and carefully on the pathway of restoration, whatever that might be, whatever it might look like. We trust this to you in Christ's name. Amen.